Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Economics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones, and today I'm joined by Paul de Grauer, the author of Economics of Monetary Union. The 13th edition of this popular textbook was published in June by Oxford University Press and includes updates on the EU's fiscal rules, as well as the European Central Bank's expanding toolbox of unorthodox policies. First published as the Economics of Monetary Integration 28 years ago, when the euro is still in its planning stages, the book has evolved in parallel with developments in the EU and has been translated into 10 languages. Global sales have now reached 50,000 copies. Along with Economics of European Integration by Baldwin and Whiplosh, Professor de Grauer's work is the go-to textbook for students in this discipline. Professor Rob Ackrill at Nottingham Business School told me why. First, he said it's frequently updated and revised, and this is essential in a dynamic policy environment. Second, while it contains a lot of theory, this is pitched at an appropriate level for undergraduates. Finally, and crucially, the theory is backed up with empirical information to give it real-world relevance. And this is where Paul de Grauer's wide experience comes in. Today, he is the John Paulson Chair in European Political Economy at the London School of Economics. Before that, he had a long career as Professor of International Economics at the University of Leuven in his native Belgium, where he was also a Liberal Member of Parliament from 91 to 2003. Twice, in 2002 and 2003, the Belgian government nominated him to join the ECB's six-person executive board, both times without success. Some said this was down to policy and experience, but others, including the then President of the Bundesbank, suggested it was because our guest was a Eurosceptic and we will come back to that. A policy intellectual, Paul is the author of many other books, including most recently, The Limits of the Market in 2017, and Behavioral Macroeconomics, co-written with UMAG, which came out last year. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy. Uh, Let's start at the beginning. Um, In 1992, uh, what prompted you to write the first edition of this book? Well, um, as you know, in life, um, many things are determined by by chance events and not much is planned. So um, this was the time of the Treaty of Maastricht. And I had a good friend, a professor at the University of Saarbrücken, and he asked me whether I would like to teach a course in economics of monetary union. And um, I was ill-prepared. I had done some research, um, but not enough to fill a full semester of teaching on, on monetary union, and so I first declined, but he insisted. And then in the end, since he was a good friend, I started doing this. So I went to Saarbrücken every week and, and working hard to, to be one, one week um, in advance to the students and, and doing lots of research. And, and at the end of the semester, I had so many notes that I had taken that I decided, why not make it a book? And, and that's how it happened to how long did it take you to write from uh, from having those notes to actually getting the getting the piece down? Well, I think something like six months, yeah, mm. uh, because you do want to do some more research. Huh? And 
the final product. Um, yeah, that's I guess all together with the teaching included, it, it probably took me a year. Yeah. Right. And it and it was written in English originally. That's right. Uh, I've always done it in English. It has been translated later, but never in my mother tongue. I've never in my- <laughs> Yeah, it's. I mean, what's the over the years? What have been the most substantial revisions you had to do? I think I can probably guess, but uh. yeah, it was. Uh, of course, at the moment we became a monetary union. That um, that meant that I had to do quite a lot of revision. Um, of course, in the language, right? In, in mm-hmm. the monetary integration book, I was always looking forward when we will enter. Now we were in, so <laughs> this was something that I had to change, but also more substantive because then really the issues became how to make it work. Mm. Um, in, in, in the 10 years before, close to 10 years before we started, it was more overcoming skepticism, right? As mm. you may know, um, most Anglo-Saxon economists were very skeptical, this will never work, etc., yeah. etc. Et then it was there, you, you, you should stop. Um, saying it will never work because it worked. But then the issues became, well, how how does it work? Explaining to the students how it works and um, warning for potential problems, right? Mm. Uh, and, and in the end, we, we did have some serious problems that were related to what I've been calling the, the fragility of the monetary union. Mm. Were, were they the problems you anticipated? I mean, you, you, you as you as you say, you, you you wrote that piece, I think, in 2011, 2013, where you talked very much about the fragility of the monetary union and the the idea of building a beautiful villa without a roof. Right. Did, did you have those same uh, or similar qualms back in 92, 93, or, or did, did, did yes. those develop? Of course, things have developed, obviously, but I was skeptical in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was um, very much in tune with the Anglo-Saxon economists um, in the sense of not saying it is, this can never work, but saying, look, it's unfinished business. And this was the metaphor of the beautiful villa without a roof. Yeah. Uh, this was an article I wrote, uh, I think, in 98 in, in the Time magazine, the, the metaphor, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so we, we have to put a roof on that construction. Otherwise, we may regret when we have bad weather, that we are in that beautiful villa, but we are very wet and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So that, that has been a, a major team right from the start, and I have continued on that team later on, yeah. Yeah. And as you say, I, I mean, the core element of the book is what you see as the, the missing piece of the project, which is budgetary union and related to that political union. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel that a strongly now in the summer of 2020, given everything we've seen over the last six months, as you did 10 years ago or, or, or even a year ago? Uh, it, it's, it's still there. The, now, one of the happy surprises of um, this pandemic is that it has made it possible to do something that just a year ago, everybody would have been deriding as totally impossible and, and um, the idea of um, a joint um, common borrowing capacity um, to, to make transfers to countries mm-hmm. that are in deeper trouble than others. And, and so clearly, <clears throat> this crisis that we are in now has forced governments to act like during the sovereign debt crisis, 
and they were also forced to act. And so that is something that probably will be repeated. And, mm. and it's very much in the, in the it's called the curse of Monet, the Monet curse, right? That um, progress in, in, in the Union, the European Union, is very much dictated by <coughs> the frequency of crisis, right? And that yeah. whips politicians into action. I, I was. I mean, that's one thing I was going to ask you, actually, based on several comments you made in the book, where you, well, as you said, you you, you talk about the, the the villa without the roof and this this missing element. But the EU does the EU and the ECB especially do react to crises, mm-hmm. and that that expectation, I, I would argue, is now pretty well built into financial market expectations. So do you think that in a way, even though it is quite, um, it's unpredictable and it's uh, uh, occasionally haphazard, that in its own way it's become predictable, the unpredictability has become predictable, the the markets know that the ECB and politicians will eventually come up with something. Is that sufficient? Well, yeah, that's, uh, I'm not sure it's sufficient. I mean, um, but, but... we should not underestimate now what has happened by, um, say, the leadership of Angela Merkel, mm. um, who has invested much of her political capital since she has been in power. Huh? This is most of the Eurozone period. Mm. Mm. Um, into um, the program of integration and maintaining the degree of integration we have in Europe. And <clears throat> So as long as we have politicians that have invested political capital in this idea that the union is necessary and is good for us, then I, I think I'm safe. But <clears throat> given what we observe about political developments and politicians, this is not guaranteed, right? Mm. It is possible that at some point, some politicians come to power in a number of countries who have invested Exactly the opposite, all their yeah. political capital into destroying the union, right? And you have politicians like that moving around in Europe. And who knows that they get into power? And then, of course, it, it will become a problem. So, the, so we, the way we can formulate it is that the risks now for the Eurozone are less, say, financial and economic, right? Mm but more political, right? In the beginning, they were financial, right? With the, the sovereign debt crisis, th- this was a, a liquidity crisis. And we were not prepared. The ECB at, at that moment was not yet prepared to provide the liquidity in the system. Um, it ultimately did in 2012, um, and that saved the system from a potential collapse. But this was like a technical problem, right? This was some failure in the, in the system, mm. and they, they, they solved it. So I think we have less of that now. It could still arise, but we, we are better prepared now. But the political risk, that we don't know. I mean, <clears throat> political risk is there. In Italy, there are politicians who want to destroy it. You have some of them in, in Spain. You have them in France. You have them in Germany. Today, I don't see a massive movement in that direction, but who knows? Yeah. I mean, this kind of populism and, and antagonism that we observe in countries can lead to that, and then, of course, this would be a big, big problem. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you make a good point in the book where you you talk about the initial costs of departure are are, are prohibitive, and um, so even if um, populists came into office and they were having to uh, uh, see through a, an internal devaluation, which would become very unpopular, it would be far more unpopular for, for them, and they are much more attuned to political popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, to 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 carry out the kind of changes required to to leave the eurozone. It, it, do you not feel that that is sufficient um, protection when you're dealing with people who are basically populist and and, and are easily swayed? Well, yeah, I mean, um, this is certainly something important. I mean, the cost of departure um, is very high, but we often see in politics like. In all at all levels of uh, human life, mm. that uh, sometimes, despite very high obstacles, when emotions are strong, you disregard this. Huh? I mean, many people divorce although there are obstacles, <laughs> but when emotions are strong enough, you do it, right? Yeah. And 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 look at what happened in Britain. I mean, you could also have argued um, the divorce <clears throat> there also will create a lot of harm for, for Britain. I'm convinced it will, but nevertheless, people do it and politicians do it and they spin and and then they develop narratives that uh, uh, enough people believe in and, and you forget about the cost, right? And in fact, since we can, we can never do the, um, like you said, the anti-histoire, so repeat things, right? Or mm. um, counterfactuals we cannot do so you can never prove that if things go bad with Britain, it was due to Brexit. Right? Mm, yeah. they, will, they will say well, it was something else, right? Mm, mm. Although, I mean, again, you could argue there that leaving the single market, leaving the customs union will be highly disruptive, but they would be nothing like as disruptive as, as leaving the target payment system or uh, mm-hmm. uh, actually changing the currency. And you discuss this in the book, the idea of the Gresham's Law idea of people the more powerful lobbies opting for you know hoarding euro banknotes um it, it is a it's a, it's an additional step to take oh, yeah fully agree no no i take your point yeah 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 i mean i i i, I the point you make about italy in the book i think is is a good one um that quite often people talk about i think uh, they talk about italy as being just economically unready uh, to deal with the euro, and you make the point that the weak link is is its political institutions, that it's unfit to be in, be in the eurozone because of that, without fundamental change, which is a very good point. Could could you expand on that? What what is it that Italy is lacking? Well, I think, uh, um, of course, Italy is a beautiful country and mm. fantastic people, but the governance indeed is is a problem, um, and the. The, the, the situation that exists in Italy before the Eurozone was one where um, the lack of discipline in, in fiscal and monetary policies in the past typically led to some inflation bias, but there was always an escape clause, right? You could always devalue and, and then restart again. It was like uh, you, you restart the engine uh, mm. each time and that of course, has also created institutions that were pretty much um, designed to work under those conditions. 
Uh, and then, of course, the environment of the user has changed completely. There was no such option anymore that you could restart the engine in the easy way as you could do before. Mm. And as a result, Italy has found it very difficult to adjust to that new environment, right? Uh, and, and the political system has been unable to, to cope with this. Um, and, and you would, for example, on a somewhat different um, scale, I mean, Italy needs um, public investment, right? Mm. I'm often going to Italy and you drive around there and you're always struck by how, um, how, how old the infrastructure is, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And so they need public investment, but how can you do public investment in, in a country where it's so difficult to organize this in an efficient way? Mm. Because not only the, the heavy bureaucracy makes it difficult, but also criminality and mafia has infiltrated mm. much of the construction industry. And as a result, it's very difficult to, to do it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, that's the weak point of Italy. And as long as I cannot change that. But by the way, I was surprised that this new bridge in Genoa was finished <laughs> two years, right? Yes. <laughs> but if you had asked me two years ago how long it will take, I would have said at least 10 years, but here they are. It's, it's ready. Yeah, yeah that, 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 that was a good and interesting sign. I, I mean, in that respect, are you a little concerned about the design of the recovery fund for next year? Because it is going to be very focused on public investment, particularly in, in the green transition, digital, digitalization of the economy and so on. So that in theory, Italy has access to 80 billion euros in grants, but in practice, it may be difficult to spend that money. Is, is, is that a concern you have? Yeah, it's a, it's a concern that I have. I'm happy, of course, that uh, we have been willing and capable of doing this, of organizing these transfers to mm. Italy and Spain and other countries. So I think that's really positive, right? I'm all in favor. I had not expected this to happen, but it, it's there. But now the challenge is, of course, to make sure that this is going to the, the right investments, right? And we, we have to... to, to Look at this, right? There, I understand also some countries who, who wanted some conditionality, not not the old-fashioned <coughs> conditionality of austerity. That's not mm. the thing that should be done in Italy, right? But but making sure that um, this this is going to the right places and and not too much um, the bucket has not too too many leaks, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, I mean. In the comments you make about Italy in the book, you say that without change, it could be forced to leave the euro area. What about the option of defaulting inside the eurozone? Do you think that's something that is that would be far less disruptive? I mean, it would be highly disruptive, but far less disruptive. Yeah, yeah. Well, for, let's put it this way. For, for the moment, and there is no need for Italy to even think of default. I mean, no. the, the debt to GDP ratio, of course, is high, and it was more than 120. It's now going to be like 140, 150 or something. Uh, mm. But given the interest rates at which they can borrow, um, the burden of that debt is not yeah. fantastic, right? I mean, they can certainly do it. Of course, things may change if the interest rate were to <laughs> increase significantly and if the ECB starts unloading the bonds again in the market, right? Mm, uh, mm. Because now a significant 
fraction of that um, of that debt is held by the ECB, and as long as it is on the books of the ECB, then Italy doesn't pay interest de facto on this debt, right? Mm. And, uh, it, and but the same is true for all the other countries huh, that, yeah. that have um, been in this QE program. So as long as we are in that situation, uh, there is no need to do it. The need may arise later on if interest rates were to increase significantly. And again, if the bonds are loaded into the market by the ECB, then um, this may arise. And then I think, yes, it is of course possible for Italy to default within the Eurozone. There's mm. no reason why should be thrown out of the Eurozone. Um, there would be losses. Um, who, mm. would, who would be losing? Well, probably um, lots of in, in institutional investors, both mm. Italian and others. And um, But that would not be the first time in history. <laughs> but don't, don't you think that would be a problem? I mean, there, I think there is, there's always an assumption um, probably since the whole Greek crisis, that a country that ran into a severe problem like that uh, would have the option of leaving. And it would it would be preferable, and, and it's also implicit in the development of the collective action clauses, perhaps, that um, that countries should stay in the Eurozone and, and, and instead default. Yeah, I mean, in fact, look at what's happened with Greece and the... the yeah. There was a, a default, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The private holders of the, of the debt, and yet Greece is still in, in the eurozone. Mm-hmm. So the losses were. In fact, I had I had a friend who was <laughs> foolish enough to buy Greek bonds when <laughs> the, when when the yield was so high. He thought, "Wow, with the yield of thirty percent, that's great." Right? <laughs> so he lost. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so many people lost, and and but uh, still. The they've done very. They've done very well since with the new bonds. I think that's right. <laughs> the timing was just wrong. My friend's timing was just wrong. Yeah. 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 Um, you you also mentioned in the book, um, and I think it's 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 a common assumption that if a if a government runs a primary surplus for too long, that that becomes politically untenable. Uh, but then, I've, of course, I, I look at the performance of Belgium since the early eighties compared to say Italy, and Belgium has been able to to do this. Um, what what is it that's different between Belgium and, and Italy and Greece and so on in, in your view? Well, um, this this was possible in Belgium during a particular time. Um, this was the the nineteen nineties and the mm-hmm. run up towards the monetary union, um, and for a few years afterwards. Uh, and then, indeed, the, um, the government's objective was to have a primary surplus large enough to reduce the debt-to-GDP ratio. And, and this had everything to do with the access to the monetary union. You could, the government here in Belgium could say, listen, it's key that we do that because we want to be in the monetary union. We, we cannot afford not being in the monetary union. And that allowed the government for about, I mean, nine to maybe even 10 years to maintain this, right? Mm. Um, once we were in, safely in, then they relaxed. Mm. It, it, then, then the primary surplus started to decline. Mm. Um, but um, this was happily also at a time when interest rates started to decline. So 
as a result, um, it didn't hurt us too much, right? Uh, and, um, yeah, but, but you indeed you you need something special, right, to mm. to make it politically feasible, and that was a unique historical situation. Yeah, although as you say, the the, the Belgians did take their foot off the gas uh, once they were in, but when the sovereign debt crisis came in 2010 onwards, Belgium was never really at threat in the way that the uh, other highly indebted countries were. Um, mm. So it, what do you think? Do you, do you think they had built up um, some credibility that the idea was that Belgium could respond quickly if necessary? Or what, what, what was it that made them different? Yeah, I guess a combination of all these things, the governance structure that uh, people were uh, less um, uncertain about compared to Italy, for example, or mm. southern countries. There was also a bias about Mediterranean countries, right, um, in the market. Uh, you, markets often tend to classify countries, right? Mm. And, and we happen to be on the, on the, on the correct side of the <laughs> north-south border, although, as you know, the north-south border actually cuts through Belgium. <laughs> um, Although the, the Irish got away with it. <laughs> so anyway, um, but that, yeah, these things. And, and of course, as you mentioned, uh, we had gone through um, a period of uh, 10 to 15 years of significant decline of the debt-to-GDP ratio. In, in the early 1990s, we had a debt-to-GDP ratio of close to 140%. Mm. And then... <clears throat> Just prior to the financial crisis um, in 2007-8, it had dropped to 80%, right? Still relatively mm. high, but there was this momentum, of downward momentum that had been strong enough to create a perception that uh, we, we were capable of handling this. Mm. I mean, given everything that's happened this year uh, alone, I, I imagine you're already thinking about a 14th edition for this uh <laughs> um, and one of these changes is uh, is something you touched on there, which is the the, the launch and the expansion of the ECB's pandemic emergency yeah, yeah, uh, purchase yeah. program. Um, effectively, this was an emergency response to the gaps you identify in the book, mm-hmm. and provides the ECB with 1.35 trillion euros so far to buy government bonds, which in in turn allows those governments to use their automatic stabilizers, which is the one of the key points you make. Now, recently you've written that uh, you think that this should not roll off the ECB balance sheet. This Effectively, this, this should be monetized. Mm-hmm. Could you take us through your arguments in favor of such a huge step for the ECB? Well, here it is. Um, um, so one of the risks that we face when the pandemic will be over, and I'm confident it will be over mm-hmm. at some point. Unfortunately, I don't know when, yeah. uh, but in any case, um, it will be over at some point. Then the problem will be that some of the countries that have been hit most by the pandemic economically, uh, we also have the highest debt-to-GDP ratios, and we will face a situation where you will have countries with relatively low debt-to-GDP ratios and others with significantly higher debt-to-GDP ratios. Now, much will depend then also on how the interest rates are evolving, as we discussed earlier, Mm. but it is possible that this may lead to 
the kind of sovereign debt crisis that we have experienced in the period 2010-2012, when investors in the bond market um, get fearful, distrusting some of the countries with high debt to GDP ratio that they consider to be um, unsustainably high, mm-hmm. and then start selling them, right? And, and, yeah. and, and going to safe havens and the repeat of the kind of sovereign debt crisis. Um, and, and of course, you, and then we, we, we destabilize the system, will be large movements away from the countries that are in most need of, of funding to countries that are actually don't need them. Um, and, and that is a potential problem. Now, how can this be solved? One, of course, is to rely just on the ECB. And the ECB has promised uh, in the OMT program that it, it started in 2012, that uh, if there was a liquidity crisis, it would intervene, right? But are we so sure, right? Um, there will be other people running the show. Um, we, we just don't know whether mm. this commitment will still be there. Um, or, and and is it, if it is a commitment that is um, linked to austerity, that would not be welcome either. Mm. So, and, and finally, um, in that situation, the debt would still be there for these countries, right? It would be out of a liquidity crisis, but the debt would still be there. So how can we solve this? Well, one possibility would be that the ECB is willing today to underwrite newly issued bonds, to, to, to buy these newly issued bonds. In other words, to finance the budget deficits directly so mm. that these governments do not have to issue bonds. Mm. Um, so it's, that, that is the central idea. Um, and um, that would avoid that in the future, these countries face too high debt-to-GDP ratios that are the result of the corona crisis. Um, so that, that's a very simple idea, in fact. Of course, mm. lots of things to say about this. One is it's illegal. <laughs> is this forbidden? Um, that's one thing, right? That's a legal issue. Uh, um, can, can we circumvent it? I think we can. Uh, so the, these governments could issue um, bonds, zero um, coupon bonds um, um, for eternity, huh? um, um, like consoles. Mm. And then you, you bring them on the balance sheet of the central bank by right? some detour. But I mean, yeah, I mean, this may not convince uh, lawyers. So um, there is still a legal issue there whether it, it can be done. Um, the other one is inflation, right? Can that lead to too much inflation? Um, and since Milton Friedman, we all know that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Now, this happens not to be true when inflation is relatively low. But it's in general true when, when you have very high inflation countries. So I did some calculations using quantity mm. of money and uh, come to the conclusion that it, it could lead to, to somewhat more inflation if the ECB were to do this monetary financing of the budget deficits that, that arise from corona. Um, but this would be manageable. I mean, this would not be by far not be hyperinflation. Mm. It would be, in fact, less than what we experienced in the 1970s, where, for example, in Germany, during that 10-year period, 
cumulative inflation was 50%. Mm. So a 10-year period, and the German mark lost 50% of its um, purchasing power, right? Mm. And in, in Britain, it was more than 100% and also. So, um, so I don't think this kind of program that I'm proposing would lead to the kind of inflation that we have experienced in the 1970s, somewhat more for a number of years, but that I think that's a price to, be, to, to pay for avoiding um, a sovereign debt crisis. Mm. Don't, don't you think politically, though, it would inevitably, if you had such a program, inevitably there would have to be some political oversight from, by the ECB itself into how countries behaved in policy terms in response for getting such massive relief from the ECB? Uh, well, I, I don't really see that. I mean, um, in fact, Britain has done it, huh? Mm. The British government has, a, has an account with the Bank of England. Mm. So they are doing monetization. The same is happening in America. Mm. Um, yeah. But of course, in, 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 in Eurozone, we are, this has become a phobia, right? I mean, yeah. this is... And I know phobias are irrational, but they are still real. <laughs> and they are uh, affecting people's behavior. So that's a problem. So I, I do realize that there is a problem there. I'm not naive. Huh? Mm. Uh, I'm just thinking as an economist, how could we do it? And that's how we can do it. So we have to try to overcome our phobia and, and make sure that, and, and make it clear that, yes, there, there would probably be some inflation, but it would be limited, right? Yeah. And are you willing to, to take that risk of somewhat more inflation? Let's not forget also that the ECB is probably the most independent central bank in the world. Mm. Why is that? Because the ECB is alone facing 19 governments. Mm. None of these governments can dictate to the ECB what it's and that contrasts again with Great Britain, right? Mm. Where mm. the government can dictate the Bank of England to do what it should do in times of crisis. The same is true in the US, not so in the Eurozone. So mm. there we have an institution that is super independent and that will surely uh, make sure that afterwards we go back to low inflation. Mm. Actually, if, I, I, if, let me put it, yeah. if every central bank is determined to do it, it's the ECB, much more than the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve. Yeah. Actually, I, I, I saw a very interesting supportive argument for this idea from, from the more hawkish side, from the Finnish economist, uh, Vesa Vierhala. Uh-huh. Uh, and he said, um, he, he argued that the failure to monetize the pandemic-related debts would end up locking the ECB into a policy stance over a long period that would be inappropriate for low debt countries. So you could, you could argue, you could certainly make the same argument from the more hawkish right. side. Right. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah. You you say in the book um, that the power base of the ECB is too decentralized and that it makes it difficult to come to decisions quickly. And I think you could you could certainly make that case around getting to the 2012, whatever it takes argument and so on. But don't you think that things have changed? I mean, since the introduction of QE in 2015 and then Draghi's overruling of the majority last September and then the speed at which the PEP was put together, 
do you, do you still is it is that something that you would revise in 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 edition fourteen? Um, I'm not sure. Um, let's look at, at at the history again, right? Um, mm. Clearly, in 2010, 2012, the ECB waited too long. Mm. It then acted, so this was great. I mean, and, and I have no criticism of Mario Draghi because he he faced this difficulty, right? And mm. there's no consensus within the governing council about this. So that's why it took two years to do it. In the end, it was done, but some damage had been done in the meantime. Now, let, look at QE. <clears throat> this started in 2015, right? Mm. Three or four years after the Fed had started doing this. So again, the ECB came very late there. Mm. Why is that? Well, again, because there was no consensus in the governing council. There was a lot of opposition about the idea of using such such an instrument, which, by the way, was not a new instrument, right? Open market policies have been used by central banks for decades, if not centuries. Um, but it's just the, the size of the program that was new. But buying government bonds has always been part of open market policies. But anyway, so there was a lot of opposition. And, and this made it difficult for the ECB to act earlier. Mm. Now, you have a point with the latest move, right? Um, there, the ECB has acted quickly. I guess you refer to the pandemic yeah. uh, program of the ECB, right? There, the action has been quick. Um, and so I certainly will have to say something about this in the new edition. One possible interpretation is that the size of the shock was so big, mm. <clears throat> leading to such existential issues for the system as a whole, that it became relatively easy to find consensus this time. But um, that's just speculation. <laughs> what, what would you like to say? I mean, the ECB, it's had to delay its policy review, um, but we will probably have the results for it uh, for, for it next year. What would you like to see as an outcome from that review if you if you were there? Uh, yeah. Um, well, technically, in fact, not much has to change. I mean, when you look at the, the treaty and the way the mandate of the ECB is formulated in the treaty, right? Mm. It says first, and the primary objective of the ECB, of the Euro system, is to maintain price stability, right? That's the primary objective. Mm. The issue here, that there could be some discussion, what does it mean practically, price stability? The ECB has in the past said it's at most 2% inflation uh, and close to, but not exceeding 2%. So there you could make some changes, right? You could make a symmetric. There's no reason to, to say it must be close mm. to, but not exceeding. I mean, there's no reason to do that. Uh, and, and maybe you, you may want to have a higher um, inflation target. These are issues that can be, discussed and for which you don't have to change the treaty at all. But the treaty there says price stability. That's one thing. The second thing that the treaty says is that provided this um, target, this objective of price stability is maintained, the ECB should also care about 
other objectives, other economic objectives, as spelled out in the treaty. And there you have a list of other objectives, which include high growth, <coughs> um, fewer things like employment, um, etc. Right, the standard list of other objectives. Um, there is there is certainly an hierarchy. Right, the, the, the treaty says first price stability and then other things. Right, and if price stability is not endangered you should actually do these other things. So within that framework, the ECB can act, right? Mm. Can act and to stabilize um, output and employment, right? Because that, that's good. If you, don't, if you don't do it in such a way that it will lead to systematic inflation, you mm. actually should do it. So um, there I don't see anything that, that should be done. Also financial stability is part of, of yeah. this whole list of um, objectives that the central bank should pursue. So um, on the whole, I don't see much change. The, the, the other important thing is um, the, the, no, the no monetary financing. And there I, mm -hmm. I, I would actually argue, but I'm sure this will never carry the day, that in extreme circumstances like we have today, the central bank should be willing to make an exception to the mm -hmm. no monetary financing of budget deficits. Um, but that, that's going to be a non-starter. Mm. Okay. Well, um, a final question. Uh, what are you working on next? Do you, do you have another book underway? Um, well, for the moment, I'm just doing a new edition of My Limits to the Market, mm -hmm. um, where I have added a few chapters. One is about um, the pandemic, and, but I asked the question, is a market system capable of um, sustaining such a large shock mm. without help from outside, mm. right? Uh, and my argument is no, when the shock is like what we experience now, the market system is helpless mm. and has to be supported by governments. And that's what I have done, these governments, right? Massive, massive support, without which the market finds it extremely difficult to extricate itself. It's not... Mm. It's not a Baron, Baron Munchausen <laughs> that can pull itself out of the morass by pulling his hair, right? Mm -hmm. uh, um, so the market needs support there that otherwise um, it could actually be destroyed. So that's one of the chapters that, that uh, and it's part of this idea of limits to the market, right? Mm -hmm. What are the limits uh, to the market? So that's something I've been, I'm now busy with. Yeah, and those are just little things of research and behavioral macro. Yeah, and you you think you will um, update uh, this book as well, Economics and Monetary Union, um, maybe next uh, year. Yeah, I will. I mean, every two years there's a new edition. Right. So it came out uh, <laughs> now um, in 2020. Mm -hmm. So in 2022 there will probably be a new edition, which means that that'll be a lot of work. On, <laughs> next year on in spring next year on. Oxford will tell me, please prepare to uh, write a new edition. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to remind our listeners, and especially those students who will be starting work on Eurozone economics in the autumn, if they haven't already, uh, today, Paul de Grau and I have been discussing his Economics of Monetary Union, published in its 13th edition in June by Oxford University Press. Paul, thank you very much for joining the podcast. It was a pleasure, Tim. Thank you.